Thank you, Sheila, for ministering for us this morning. I probably say this every time that somebody sings that song, but that is my personal favorite Christmas song out of all of them. This is my opinion. If you disagree with that, you're welcome to be wrong, as always. Uh, I happen to very much appreciate that song and just a beautiful song, and Sheila, as always, did a beautiful job with it um, this morning. I want to take just a moment and welcome those of you that might be a guest with us this morning. We want to take a minute and just welcome you and thank you for joining us today. And uh, there's a QR code that is printed on a small cardboard, piece of cardboard in front of you, um, a card. And it looks like the one on the screen behind me. And what you can do is you can scan that and that'll take you to a place where you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, answer a couple of questions for us. And that will then give us the opportunity to follow up with you if you have any questions about our ministry, just so we can get to know you a little bit more particularly. Also, it's not just for new guests. It's not just for first-time people. If you are a member at Grace or you've been around for a little while and there's areas of the ministry you want more information about and you don't know exactly how to get a hold of us, you can use this QR code and you can also contact us that way as well. And then we can get back with you and answer those questions that you may have about our church and ministry and how you can get a little bit more involved here at Grace. Well, as we are uh, looking ahead, as I mentioned a little while ago, in the coming weeks, uh, we are going to be looking at uh, some various aspects of ministry as we look forward to 2022, and we're going to start that a little bit this morning. And as I mentioned, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas yesterday, and it's always interesting to me as I watched our uh, traditions that we that we practice at our at our home. In fact, we took some time yesterday and asked our kids what family traditions do you like the most? And they had various and sundry answers about that. But what is interesting to me is how Christmas changes over time for you as an individual, for me as an individual. And there is this moment in which you go from, as a kid, I was talking to my neighbor kids yesterday and just the wonder of the day and they have their new gifts and they're outside and they're playing and they're doing all these great things and you can probably remember back when you were a kid just the the expectation of the gifts under the tree and all of those things but over time at some point especially once you have children you go from being primarily the person that receives a gift to taking everybody else's gifts and putting them together and you are the one that is now the instructions like nobody looks at those at least I don't so you end up with this pile of stuff and you're trying to you know get this thing to stay together and you hopefully get it right and that's your kind of Christmas day and while those things change there's something that never changes and that is the message of Christmas how we practice it as a family may look a little bit different we have some Christmas Eve traditions that we keep and we do that, and we've done that for years and years and years. And those things are unique to our family. So how we play those out, it may look different from home to home. But what doesn't change is the message that God's Son took on flesh in the form of a baby. The message of Christmas has yet to change and never will. There's something else that hasn't changed about Christmas, at least in our family, and that is... The Christmas meal. And as I get older, I can't eat after like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm one of those guys. Like it just it bothers me after I, if I eat too late in the day. And I also try not to eat too much. Christmas, that goes out the window. And so we ate and we ate. And my wife made a tremendous dinner for us. 
And afterwards, I felt physically ill and had to go outside, take the trash out and all that stuff and walk down to the stop sign and back just to get myself moving a little bit after I ate all of, all of that. Here's the miracle, though. By the time I woke up this morning, I was ready to eat again. All of that food digested, hopefully I can, you know, went for my, you know, out for my exercise this morning, hopefully work some of that off today. But the reality is when I leave here, I'll be hungry again. And yet we find something very interesting, a very intriguing picture in the prophet Isaiah's writing about this imagery of a banquet. And it's a banquet that if we partake of this banquet, you'll never be hungry again. He's not talking about physical food. He's talking about something much more important than that. And so in line with our Christmas theme, we're going to look at Isaiah 55 this morning. And we're going to look at Isaiah 55, verse five verses or so today. We'll look at the rest of the chapter next week. And we are, as I mentioned, we are working through over the next few weeks, just reminding us, who are we as a church why do we have this ministry? What is this ministry all about? And there's different ways that we play out our ministry. There's different practical ways that we practice ministry, if you will. But we are just going to work through, over the next several weeks, our purpose statement. Who are we as a church? Why are we here? Why do we do what we do? Well, Grace Baptist Church exists to make and mature disciples for the glory of God. That is why this ministry was started that is why this ministry, by God's grace, will continue to move forward and fulfill this purpose. So today and next week, we're going to actually talk about the first part of this purpose statement. Grace Baptist Church exists for what purpose? To make disciples. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, Isaiah chapter 55 is a very interesting chapter. Isaiah is a very interesting book some people have actually referred to the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel we understand that the gospels are found in the new testament Matthew Mark Luke and John Matthew Mark and Luke being the uh, synoptic gospels and then John is a gospel as well but a little bit of a different format but in the book of Isaiah we find that God's people are confronted with their sin not only are they confronted with their sin, they also are called to repentance. And they also then are called to understand and remember the blessings that come with having a personal, intimate relationship with their creator. Well, Isaiah 55 is a little bit of a turning point, if you will, within this book. The news that the prophet Isaiah has given to the people of God up until this point is not good. The people of God were in spiritual trouble. But when we come to Isaiah 55, he has already called them to repentance. He has outlined for them the problem, the spiritual problems that they are having. And now he is going to begin to describe, well, what do we do about that? Isaiah is a book that you may not be super familiar with. It's a little confusing in some regards because you have to understand Israel's history and where this book was written and what time frame this book was written to understand Isaiah's message, to understand Isaiah's uh, prophetic call to the people of, 
of Israel. So I'm just going to review that very, very quickly. But because of Israel's sin, primarily, by the way, their sin of idolatry, their sin of pursuing the gods from the nations around them, because of Israel's sin, God sent his people into captivity. In the year 722 B.C., the northern portion of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. That was in 722 B.C. In 586 B.C., the southern part of Israel, Judah, would be taken away by Nebuchadnezzar, the man, the king of Babylon. Now, I say that to say this. Where did Isaiah write this prophetic call, this prophetic message to the people of Israel? Where does it lie? Where does it rest historically between these two different exiles? Well, the prophet Isaiah ministered, and again, these dates, you know, there's different commentators that have different dates for this. It's hard to know exactly the dates of his ministry But there's a general consensus that Isaiah ministered between the year 740 B.C. through 700 B.C. Well, why is that important? Well, Isaiah is writing this book during, actually before, during and after the northern kingdom is taken into captivity. But he's writing this before Judah would be taken into captivity in 586. Isaiah's primary message is to Judah. Look at what happened. Look at what has happened to the northern portion. Now the kingdom divided, the kingdom Divided really after Solomon. The northern part of the nation, they've already been taken away into captivity because of their sin, because of their idolatry. And now Isaiah is telling God's people that judgment was coming for his people. And his judgment, however, wonderfully, would not be the final verdict. And so in, these, in this chapter, in chapter 55, Isaiah has described the problem, he has made his diagnosis, and now he is going to tell them, this is the remedy. How do we get out of this? As I mentioned, Isaiah's focus is on Judah, but his scope is global, global in the sense it applied to all of Israel, and it certainly applies to us. And so today, as we look at Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 5 this week and the rest of the chapter next week, I want us to look at this section of Scripture as we think about our call to make disciples. This world is a very dark place. And in fact, it's seemingly getting darker by the minute. And rather than throw our hands up in despair and go hide ourselves on a closet somewhere what are we supposed to do well we're going to fall into two camps if you will on this some people here this morning are watching online you may need to follow God's call to repentance because you've never believed in his son the one that was born on Christmas day you've never put your faith in him this message for you will be a call to repentance but there are some of us most of us the majority of us who have already believed in Christ This is a call for us to make sure that we remember the remedy for our world's problems is not political change. It is not found in psychology. It is found in redemption. 
It is found in coming to know Christ in a very personal way. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to explain in some rather detail, a little bit of detail, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to make some applications. Okay, well, what does this mean for us as New Testament believers, understanding Isaiah wrote this 700 plus years prior to Christ even coming. So what does this have to do with us living on this side of the cross? And we'll talk about that in a few moments. Let's take this a couple of verses at a time. Actually, we'll just take it to verse 1, and then we'll look at uh, verse 2 in just a moment. Read with me, if you would, Isaiah 55, verse 1. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, again, this is imagery here. We're going to explain the imagery in just a moment. But I want you to put this, again, in a very specific context. Israel, it's very tempting, I think, for most of us. If you know anything at all about the nation of Israel and their spiral in the Old Testament of obedience and disobedience, obedience and disobedience, it's very easy for us to look back and be very judgmental. And say, wow, if I was living at that time, I wouldn't be falling down and worshiping idols made of rock. I wouldn't be worshiping these pagan idols. And it's very easy and very tempting for us to be very judgmental over the Old Testament nation of Israel. And yet, in reality, we are absolutely no different than they are. Our sin may look different. Our gods look different. We may not fall down behind, before idols made of stone and rock and wood, but we worship all kinds of idols, like the idols of pleasure, the idols of comfort, the idols of materialism, the idols of acceptance, and the idols of the list is endless, many, many different idols that we long for. So we're no different. And yet when Isaiah writes to them and he confronts them very boldly with their sin and he calls them to repentance, verse 1 is a beautiful verse because despite all of that, despite their sin, despite the fact that they've worshipped idols and they have pursued gods of other nations again and again and again and again, God's mercy and grace was still available to them. Now put, that, put your name in that verse for a minute. Despite how many times you have wandered away from God. Despite the depths of your, the own, your own idolatry that is raging in your own heart this morning. Despite that, this applies to you. Come. Who? Those who are perfect. Those who are without sin. Is that what he says? He says, come everyone who is thirsty. Everyone who has this spiritual thirst, this spiritual need that God himself is inviting his people to enjoy his nourishing presence by offering him water and the blessings that cannot be purchased with money. You, me, all of us, the United States of America spent billions of dollars, millions at least, on Christmas this year. None of it will save you. None of it will bring lasting satisfaction to your life. I left the dinner table yesterday stuffed, and it didn't satisfy. And so all the things of this world that we believe that I have a spiritual thirst, I have a spiritual hunger, if I can just have that, then I will have satisfaction. 
Then I will find contentment. And yet God calls us to a very different banquet. And by contrast to the pagan gods of the nations that were around Israel who were very demanding, there was a high price for following them. Even though they had eyes and couldn't see and ears that couldn't hear and mouths and couldn't speak, following the idols of the pagan world around them was very costly. And by the way, following the pagan gods of our culture is costly as well. Ultimately, the cost is your own soul. I love the imagery that the Bible tells us that whatever you worship, that's what you're going to become like. If you worship, in the Old Testament context, an idol that is that is unable to hear, an idol that cannot see, an idol that cannot speak. It is a lifeless piece of stone. It is a lifeless piece of rock. If you worship it, you're going to be just like it. How's your pursuit of materialism working out for you? How is your pursuit of comfort working for you? How is your pursuit of acceptance at any cost working for you? You see, we all have these idols and worship them, and they come at a great cost. The Lord, on the other hand, is offering to us true and lasting relationship that can produce ultimate, true satisfaction. This relationship would be made possible by the coming Messiah. And notice here, the hungry, they can feast at the Lord's table. They can receive what God has promised to them. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And by the way, you don't even have to have money to get it. In fact, money can't buy this gift. Money can't earn a way at this table. It cannot buy a ticket to sit at this table. You don't need money to buy it. Come, buy, and eat. The hungry can feast at the Lord's table and they can receive the abundant life that God offers to them. Now, if you're thinking through Isaiah 55 and some of the imagery that we see here in the prophet, you're probably thinking ahead, like I am, towards the New Testament. And we'll interweave some New Testament verses just to see the ultimate fulfillment of what Isaiah is writing about. In John, for instance, chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, with a very familiar story found there about the Samaritan woman at the well. And the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you know the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And there's a conversation that goes back and forth between them. And a few verses later, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this water that is coming from the well, they will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He wasn't talking about physical water any more than Isaiah is talking about physical water. He is talking about the life-giving, in fact, by the way, water is used of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. 
this image, you've heard that verse, right? He was, you have to be born, born of water and all of that in the New Testament. I'm blanking on the reference on the top of my head. But you're familiar with that verse. The water there is actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so understanding that this imagery that, that Jesus is talking about, this living water is not a reference to physical water, but water that is found in him in a relationship with him. In John chapter 6, just a couple of chapters later, we find this, truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever believes has eternal life, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In fact, in John chapter 7, next chapter, we find Jesus once again who says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now notice Isaiah's point. He is talking about this banquet that is available to us through our creator, through God. And again, it has, can't be purchased with money. And we know that in every individual's heart, our hearts were made to worship the true living God. Therefore, the delights of this world will never bring lasting soul satisfaction it's futile isaiah says to spend money on what can only provide temporary satisfaction oh we need to buy food we need to buy things that will sustain us physically but god here is talking about something deeper something more profound something more eternal something more valuable and it's something that you cannot purchase at the local walmart it is something, you won't believe this, Amazon can't even sell it to you. And it comes without a price to you. Come, if you are thirsty and hungry. Notice verse 2. He builds on this imagery a little bit farther. And he says, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Now, we think back through the three specific products, if you will, that God says is available to you. Let's take a moment and look at them. They're found in verse 1. We've already read that. But in verse 2, he's talking about listen, don't waste your money on physical things in the sense of expecting it to do something it was never intended to do. It can never bring you lasting satisfaction. But notice what God offers first of all. He offers us water. Now, for those who have ever been lost in the desert or something like that, you've been exceptionally thirsty and water is all you can think about, you become obsessed with it. Most of us on a day-to-day -day living, we don't think about water because it's, we have clean water, we have access to it. I remember the thirstiest that I can ever remember being, I was probably about 10, 11 years old, and we were out bike riding with my family. My dad was there, I think my older brother was there, I can't really remember. I don't remember having a a train around my Christmas tree when I was a kid until Pastor Brian mentioned that last week, so my memory is a little bit fuzzy sometimes. But my dad was big into biking for a while. He rode, him and my brother rode their bikes from where we lived in Delaware to upstate New York. Now, if you don't have any 
reference for that, just to put that in a little reference point, that's a six and a half hour car drive. And they would ride, they rode their bike up there and long story, but they did. So my dad would go out and ride bikes. And so we're out riding with them. And Delaware is a weird state. We lived in very rural Delaware. It was mostly cornfields and that sort of thing and woods. Well, of course, whoever was leading this journey knew where we were going. And every road in Delaware looks pretty much the same when you get off the main roads. So we got lost. And it was hot. It was summertime. And we had no water. And I remember... I have the gift of exaggeration from what I hear from my family often. I was about ready to die. At least as my 10-year-old mind or whatever I was at the time was telling me, I thought for sure that, like, this is it for me. And we know that we can go days without eating, but we can't go days without drinking water. And so we're riding around, and I, the, the moment of glory happened when somebody in our little band of lost bike riders said, hey, I know the people who live in that house. Let's see if they have anything to drink. And so up their driveway we went, riding our bikes, knocked on the door, nobody was home. But they had a garden hose. We turned that thing on, the water coming out of that, I might be exaggerating, but it was about 168 degrees coming out of that water hose. Nobody cared. We had to have water. In this imagery, are you thirsty spiritually? Are you dying of thirst right now? Are you longing for something that will bring you lasting satisfaction, lasting contentment? We won't get to this this morning, but at the end of this chapter, lasting peace and joy. Are you dying for that this morning? It's not found in this world. It is found at God's miraculous banquet table. If you're thirsty, he says, come and I will give you water. The essentials of life. His water revives the faint. His water restores the weary. The good shepherd leads me beside still waters and he restores my soul. But here's the beauty. Not only does the Lord quench our soul's thirst at the moment, as Jesus said in John 4, 14, that we drink of his water, we will never thirst again. You think about Grace Baptist Church, the three little words that appear on our screens before the service. Maybe you don't see them anymore because they've been up there for a long time. The first one is living. We're alive in Christ. New life found through him, through the living water of Christ. But not only does God provide water, back to verse 1, he also provides for us milk without money. God offers life and refreshment, but he also supplies what is necessary for nourishment, strength, and growth. Yes, we need water to live, but there is also, he says, milk at this table. And this milk is necessary for us to grow spiritually and to mature and to be strengthened by the word of God. In fact, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that it, that it is by that you may grow up into salvation. If indeed, he says, you have tasted that the Lord is good. So not only is there life-giving water, but there is maturing nourishment in the form of 
spiritual milk. That is the second word on our little picture that's up before the services each week, and that is the word growing. That not only we're focusing on making disciples this morning, but we also want to mature disciples. This is sustenance that keeps us growing. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, He is the bread of life. It is He and His Word that feeds us and nourishes us toward maturity. Come, you who are thirsty. Come, you who are spiritually hungry, to the banquet table of your Creator, and you will never again thirst, and you never again will experience spiritual hunger. But in God's grace and mercy and wonder, it's not even just about sustaining your life. Because there's this other word that might make you nervous. He says that not only is there water and milk, but there's wine at this table. Throughout Scripture, wine is associated with God's blessing, with God's joy. In fact, Psalm chapter 4, not chapter, there's no chapters in Psalms, the fourth Psalm, we'll get it right. You have put joy in my heart, then they have that their grain and wine abound. Psalm 104, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. I won't read through all the verses that I have listed this morning, but Proverbs 3 is another text, Deuteronomy 7, verse 10. And then in Isaiah chapter 16, verse 10, actually we see wine being used in the opposite way, and that is, and joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field, and in the vineyards no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Here the removal of God's blessing is pictured by the removal of of wine. Now, we have to understand that in Scripture, wine is a powerful image of God's blessing. And yet, like with so many other of God's wonderful gifts, it is one that is abused very often. Yes, milk can be abused as well, especially in certain forms of milk, that's true. But wine, a word of caution here as we think through this, because of wine's physiological effect, it can be abused and create horrific consequences. However, in Scripture, letting Scripture say what it says in this context, it is pictured as a blessing. It was a picture of God's divine blessing upon their lives. Now, let's look at verse 3, and then we'll, make some, then we'll look at 4 and 5 and then make some applications. Notice verse 3. That's all great. Wonderful. But notice, before I get to verse 3, notice verse 2. He says, Isaiah says, listen diligently. Listen. Notice verse 3. Incline your ear. Another way of saying, listen. And come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Notice that hearing and obeying God's word brings life. That there is a sense of submission in this verse. And while exile, remembering that at this point in time, the northern part of Israel is already experiencing the exile, the southern part of 
Israel was yet to face their exile, and yet despite their exile, despite the fact that from humanly, just human perspective, it seemed that God had forsaken them, that he wasn't finished with Israel yet. And he says in verse 3 that you have to understand that I will make with you an everlasting covenant. By the way, the covenant here he is referencing is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when it is a covenant that God made with David. And he said this in that text in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This was another reference to David, but ultimately the Messiah, Christ himself. And so, while it seemed like on a human perspective that Israel was done, they were toast. They had this history of idolatry, this history of disobedience, this history of profound sinfulness that not only was God calling them to repentance, he was calling them to blessings and reminding them that the covenant that he had with them was eternal. And by the way, I don't know your spiritual condition this morning, but despite the exile... And how it felt to the people of Israel. God had not abandoned them. And he was not finished with Israel. And by the way, there's still a yet future for Israel. But my dear friend, no matter where you are spiritually, the mistakes you have made, the number of times you have wandered away from your Lord, and no matter how many times you've sinned against him, he's not finished with you either. And this beautiful picture, redemption, being an eternal situation called in the New Testament a new covenant with the church. For sake of time, we don't have opportunity this morning to look at verses 4 and 5 in detail, but let me just read them. It's unfortunate. Maybe we'll come back to verses 4 and 5 a little bit next week um, just to kind of pick up the flow of this text. But let me read those verses, then we'll make some applications in our last few minutes. He says this, verse 4, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Notice now we're talking about a him, a person. Behold, you shall call a nation what you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you, that even the nations would come to understand redemption through Israel. We don't have time this morning, but look at these two words in verse 4. That the one that was going to come, the Messiah, he is described as a leader and as a commander. Let me just mention very briefly the word leader, Nagid, which is also found in Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 where it says this. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth to the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince. Same word, Nagid, the king, the ruler, the prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And so this promise of this coming prince, this coming leader who had the right to command, the right to be king. Well, what does all this mean for us? That's great. Jay, for the last 25 minutes or so, you've given us a lot of information, but what does this have to do with us as believers? 
Let me make some applications for us as a church this morning. I think there's three of them. Number one, we, like the people of Israel, can get mixed up in our priorities very quickly. We readily spend our money, our time, our effort on items that will never produce lasting satisfaction. In the meantime, we often neglect the most important matters of life. It it would be wonderful if at the time of salvation, all of our sinfulness, all of the tendencies that we have to pursue other gods, that that would be erased. And yet, the human condition tells us that because of our flesh, we are still drawn away toward things that we believe will bring us satisfaction in this world. And yet, time and time again, we are disappointed. And so I challenge you today as we think about this text, don't become like the people of Israel that got mixed up in their priorities and distracted away from what was eternal in pursuit of the physical matters. In this case, in the picture Isaiah gives us of food. In fact, it reminded me of Matthew 23. In verses 23 through 26, Jesus says this, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you are filled with greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. We focus on the outside, the things that people see, and neglect the spiritual weightiness of knowing and having and growing and maturing in our relationship with God. So we need to make sure that we are keeping our priorities straight. Number two, we, like the people of Israel, can often forget the magnitude of God's offer. And for most of us here this morning, we have already received Christ as our Savior. We understand what this means for redemption, but maybe we have forgotten the magnitude of what that means. That God's invitation to his banquet is available to all who are thirsty, Ethnicity doesn't matter. Socioeconomic status doesn't matter. It is available even to those who have absolutely no money. It is free to the one who would believe. Those who are spending on insignificant items, insufficient items, verse 2, are encouraged to listen. And we, like the people of Israel, need to be reminded that we have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. Here's the reality as I, think about, as I think about this text. There are those that are spiritually poor and empty and who have acknowledged their need and they have received redemption. They are at the banquet table of the Lord. And yet there are those who believe in human effort and expenditures can secure lasting satisfaction. And yet, as Isaiah reminds us, That's a waste of our money and time. Number three, we, like the people of Israel, often neglect our responsibility to tell the world about God's gracious offer. When Israel chose to forsake God, and they did so time and time again, and worshiped idols, they failed to be light of the world. I don't have time to get into the details of this this morning, but let me just briefly say this. 
that under the Old Testament age and the Old Testament dispensation, the nation of Israel was set apart by God in order to be his chosen nation through whom redemption would be made known. The New Testament church today is not Old Testament Israel. They are two different things. They are two different entities. Israel will be restored in the coming millennium, the coming kingdom. Yes, the prophecies given to Israel were yet to come to fruition, but not in this age of the church. We are now God's chosen nation. As a church, we are now God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, that upon us, we have been called to be salt and light to the world. But in the Old Testament age, it was Israel. And when Israel wandered away from God and worshipped pagan idols, they lost their testimony. They lost their ability to serve as light to the world. In fact, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, Isaiah writes this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the world. Now, Israel was given that responsibility. Ultimately, this would be fulfilled in the coming Messiah. I understand that. But in the Old Testament age, it was to be them that was to be salt and light to the world. Now, as I finish this morning, we are living in the New Testament age. We are living in the New Covenant. We are as the church, not local church, Grace Baptist Church, but as the church collectively, universally, those who truly have faith in Christ, the church, God's body, that we have now been left with this responsibility to be sought and light to this world. And as I leave you today... I want to encourage you, implore you to take Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 5 and apply this truth to proclaim God's good news to the people around you in two very specific ways. Number one, live out your faith in your daily life. Israel failed at that. Again and again and again. Collectively. Not every individual, but collectively. And we as New Testament believers are commanded then to live out this truth in our daily lives in such a way that people see salt and light in you. They recognize there's something different about you. They recognize that you don't live by the world's philosophy. You don't live by the world's priorities. You don't live for yourself. You live for somebody else. You live for your redeemer. Do people see that in your day-to-day living? Now, as I've said before, I get the idea of friendship evangelism. It's gotten a bad rap for some good reasons at times. However, the reason being is because sometimes we get friends with people, we just never quite get around to telling people their need of redemption. We think our lifestyle is enough, that they see me living this way, they're going to magically come to know Christ as their Savior. Likely not, they won't, just by your life. Someone has to declare to them the truth. And so not only do we live this truth in our daily lives, but number two, we declare God's glory in the dark world to bring light to the spiritually blind. It is by speaking the gospel do we see people come to know Christ. So not only do we live it, we declare it. By the way, the, reason, the only reason I say it's likely they may come through another way, is that someone else will tell them. 
It has to come through God's people speaking truth in love. And so Grace Baptist Church, we need to be a place that never forsakes the proclamation of the gospel. We never forsake proclaiming what God offers to those who are thirsty spiritually, to those who are hungry spiritually, because there's only one answer. There's only one solution that brings lasting satisfaction and contentment. It is the living water. It is the bread of life. It is Christ. And our call is to tell the world. Live it? Absolutely. Tell it? Absolutely. So on the screen behind me, we have to be living. Are you alive spiritually? Have you ever placed your faith in Christ? Are you tired of trying to find satisfaction for your soul in the empty things of this world? Are you weary of that? There's an answer. It's Jesus. Believer, are you growing? Are you taking the spiritual life that God has given to you through his water and now you're nourishing on the milk of his word and growing and maturing and included in that is telling other people about what Jesus can do for them. Is that true about you? So this morning, come, feast at the Lord's table and never be spiritually hungry or thirsty again. At his table, you will find eternal satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to present this text this morning. It's such a wonderful picture of what we have as New Testament believers in Christ. And God, I pray that you would remind each and every one of us of the glorious truth of the gospel. That sinners like us that are so prone to wander, sheep that are prone to wander away from the shepherd, that you are still graciously waiting, calling us to come, to eat, to drink from the well that gives living water that leads to eternal life. God, may we as believers proclaim that message. And if there are those here this morning that do not know for sure that they are born again, that they have ever experienced eternal life through Christ, God, that this morning maybe they may find someone to talk to you and hear from your word that it's by faith that we come to redemption, not through our works of righteousness, not through our money, not through our giving of time and, and talent even. It's only through faith. And so God, I pray as we close our service this morning that you would work in our hearts and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask God if you would to come just lead us in a closing song. As we sing, if you want to come to the front and pray, you can certainly always do that. I'll be here during the, at the front um, at the end of the service today if you would like to speak with someone. Pastor, Mr. Scott, Mr. Breyer. There's a simple Christmas song we sing at Christmas time, but it goes along with Pastor's message to go and tell. And that is, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born, that Jesus Christ can save, that he can satisfy. Let's stand together as we sing.